After the Time Out podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches talking basketball on the court, off the court, and anything in between. On today's episode of the After the Time Out podcast, we sit down with Coach Will Ray, head boys basketball coach and athletic director at Northridge College Prep in Niles, Illinois. Prior to being head coach at Northridge, Coach Ray has spent his career coaching at both the high school and collegiate level over the last 40 plus seasons. We talked to Coach Ray about his 1-3-1 defense, offensive system, coaching at a variety of levels, and things he has learned from a tough loss and throughout his 40 years. Enjoy the show. Coach, thanks. Awesome for joining us. So first question, this is, this is kind of a new one, um, obviously based on Illinois, right? We're, we're all of a sudden going to play, okay? <laughs> um, obviously with, with your experience and I'm just wondering how you're preparing for like the short season and how you're getting prepared for your season. You know, I don't know, you could be playing this Friday, you could be playing this week, next week. Uh, what are you guys doing to prepare in a, something that's unprecedented we've never had before? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, I want to thank both of you guys for this opportunity to be with you tonight. And uh, I really appreciate um, a little bit. I've gotten to know about your uh, ATO podcast. Uh, you're you know, doing this to promote basketball, especially in the state of Illinois. And I think that's just a, a really good thing. And I, so I appreciate all the time and effort. I know that you guys put into this and I'm also honored to be, to, to be one of your guests. Uh, yeah, this whole thing, golly, you want to talk about moving fast, right? I mean, we went from, uh, we weren't sure whether we were going to have, uh, you know, contact practices or no practices at all, or games, or maybe in the spring, summer, whatever. Next thing you know, here we are, right? We're back in practice and uh, preparing to play. We're, we're actually be playing on, on Friday and Saturday of this week. So uh, I know our players are really excited for the opportunity, you know, and I'm sure Todd and John, you guys have experienced the same thing. It, you know, it's, um, it's been difficult, right? It's been difficult for, for you know, um, for coaches. It's been difficult for, for parents. But golly, most of all, it's been difficult for student athletes, right? And especially the seniors. And that's where my heart really went out to. Our, we have two seniors in our varsity this year. Both are returning junior starters from a, Really, really, really good team last year to won 27 games. And I would have just been heartbroken for them had we not had an opportunity to have a, a season or even, even if it's a truncated season with, you know, not as many games as normal and no state tournament and whatever, at least uh, at least they have an opportunity to go out and play and, and, and finish your high school careers on a good note. So, um, you know, it's all new, right? New territory. We, you know, how, how do you prepare your team? which, you know, short turnaround, uh, maybe some of the games that we have on a schedule might not materialize because of COVID concerns, but we're just uh, going to stay as, as uh, adaptable as, as what I've been talking to our team about guys. we got to be adaptable, realize that all of a sudden a three o'clock game on a Saturday might become a, a seven o'clock game on a Saturday, or you might be playing one opponent. And then on Thursday night, you're finding out you're playing a different opponent on Friday. So whatever comes our way, we'll accept. We're just, grateful for the opportunity to play. 
So coach, I, I've been a, a fan for a long time of, of you and I've seen you on, man, on many uh, clinics and, and around the state, around, around the country. Um, you know, so you became a, a D1 head coach at age 35, I believe at Loyola. You know, what were things that you don't think that you were ready for maybe? What are things that in that first year you kind of learned? And if you, if you look back, you know, and, and could do anything differently, would you change anything? Yeah, boy, that's a great question, John. Really a good question. One, you got to, yeah, in in the interest of full disclosure, I mean, it's one that I obviously thought a lot about, not so much in recent years, but immediately after the Loyola experience, I was there as a head coach for five years. And after having um, been at the University of Evansville with Jim Cruz for four years, where we had nationally ranked teams that played the NCAA and NIT tournaments and had won in our conference, um, you know, it, it, it was kind of interesting. I, I don't know that you're ever truly prepared for your first head coaching job at any level, right? And I had been a high school head coach before Loyola. Um, you know, but one thing I, I, I mean, there's a couple of things that I'll, I'll share. One is that I, I realize that there's, um, you know, you, you're never fully prepared. I mean, that every job is unique. Every job has its own nuances. Um, and, and some jobs are even more forgiving than others, Right. There are some situations that because of the resources or the talent that's there or uh, the, the tradition or the history, the recent history of the program, when you become the head coach, it's kind of set up to help a rookie coach, head coach, be successful. So I like to say that some jobs are more forgiving than others. And really at that time, you know, the, the Loyola situation was definitely a challenging one. And not only for me, it had been a challenging one for my my predecessor in his last couple of years, and then for several of the coaches that came here, right? So uh, there were some inherent, uh, you know, um, uh, challenges and obstacles that that, that made it a, 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 a real difficult situation. Uh, you know, things that I would do differently, you know, I mean, I guess you always look back and, and you know, and, and say, you know, I, I wish I would have done this maybe or that, but I've tried throughout the course of my career, John, not, not to second guess, myself too much. I mean, I obviously try to, to study and, and, and reflect and look back and, and see how I maybe would have done things differently. But I felt that the things I did, I did uh, when I did them with the information I had at my disposal, right? And, um, you know, hindsight, obviously, is a great teacher. Hindsight's also a great, um, uh, you know, gives us a, a great view to, to reflect and uh, certainly I learned a lot from that situation. I think it made me a better coach. And I tell you more than that, I think it made me a better person because I think it really uh, helped me see some things about myself that had to improve as a coach if I was going to continue to stay in a profession, which, which I have done now for uh, 45 years, I guess it is. So, uh, so anyway, it's a good question and, and one that I uh, certainly thought about um, immediately after the fact. So I, you know, I always find this, this question interesting. And, and when we had Jason Tucker from Taft on, you know, I kind of had asked them this similar question. So, you know, you were a head coach at three very different high schools. Obviously you have Fenwick, um, which is a larger Catholic school. You know, you have Crete Moni, which is a public school. And then, you know, now you're at Northridge, which is more of a, a smaller private school. What, what were the, what were the differences uh, of each one or, and maybe what was a similarity in each one? Yeah, good, good question, John. I mean, um, 
You know, it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, I was also at Gordon Tech. Yeah, that's uh, right. Be- before I went to, to Crete Mooney, I was at Gordon Tech uh, for four years, I believe it was. Anyway, and, um, you know, I, I look at my high school coaching career. Those are the four stops I've had. Gordon, Crete Mooney, Fenwick, and now Northridge. And three of the situations are very, very similar, almost identical in many respects. I felt that Gordon, Fenwick, and now Northridge are uh, all boys schools. With, they're faith-based schools, Catholic schools. And, uh, and Crete was the, the, the outlier in a sense. And it was in a, a co-ed public school education type uh, situation. And, uh, you know, what, what I find um, that I really enjoyed about uh, you know, being in, in the situation I'm in right now and what I was in at Gordon and Fenwick is that there were just great athletic traditions. I mean, especially at, at Fenwick and Gordon, um, you know, and not just in basketball, but in every sport, right? And it was just a, a real uh, a prominence of, uh, of the athletic department within the curriculum, within the school culture. And uh, although, you know, at Crete we had good teams and, and basketball was important, it's just the difference, the uh, inherent difference between uh, private and, and, and public education. But, uh, you know, when I, when I landed here at Northridge 17 years ago, uh, I, I saw it as a situation that was very similar to those experiences I had had at Fenwick and Gordon. And when I decided in 2004 to leave college coaching, I was hoping to find a situation like a Gordon or like a Fenwick, where I felt uh, I had just fond memories and had built great relationships with not only the, the people that I worked with, but the young men that I had the opportunity to coach. So before we kind of get into the X's and O's part of it, you know, my, my one other question I had, so obviously you've coached for over 40 years. You've, you've obviously won so many games and lost so many games. I'm always interested to hear from, from a coach because I know I have one or two myself. What is a, a story about a memorable loss and what's something that, that you learned from that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting um, because as coaches, we have a tendency to remember some of those heartbreaking losses, right? A lot more than yeah. we remember the wins, you know? And uh, yeah, I remember uh, one of my mentors in coaching was a coach by the name of Norm Goodman, who's now deceased and uh, was a great coach at Hall of Fame coach at, at Leiden High School. And, um, and when he got up in years, I, I asked him, I said, Norm, what, you know, what, what insight can you give me as you get older in coaching? He said, you know, he said, I, I, as I got older, he said, I remembered, uh, I took the losses a lot harder and, and I, I was able to kind of get past the wins a lot easier, you know, and he said the losses stayed with me a lot longer. So, uh, but, you know, you think about one particular loss in, in 20, I think it was 2013, I believe it was, uh, we were playing in a sectional uh, game here at Northridge against Providence St. Mel, a very, very good Providence St. Mel team. And it was really an interesting uh, season for us because we came into the season without um, much, you know, fanfare. We had just uh, had two or three really good years in a row where we had been, you know, won a lot of games and won three straight regionals and so forth. And, um, and in 2013, we came in with a relatively inexperienced team, a couple of good seniors, and uh, and that team just really achieved at a high level and won 20 games, won the regional championship. But we're playing Providence St. Mel in a sectional, and, and a very good Providence St. Mel team. In fact, they had a couple, at least one, maybe two Division One players, and ended up placing in, in the top four in the state. And we had the game won, 
and uh, came down to the last shot. We had a two-point lead uh, with seconds left on the clock, and you know they threw threw in a rainbow from the from the right corner as you look at the basket, and it was one of those where the ball was in slow motion in the air, right? <laughs> and uh, and the horn went off with the ball the ball reached its apex, you know, and came down and swished through, and we ended up losing by by a point. And you know, you look back and. You know, we really did just about everything right defensively that we would have wanted to do. And uh, just, you know, guy made a heck of a shot and, you know, we, we, we went home and, you know, uh, we, you know, we had missed a few free throws going into the last minute of the game that maybe if anything, we, we you know, we, we put a greater emphasis on free throw shooting in practice as a result of it. But really, it was nothing different that we would have done. But it was one of those that stayed with us for a long time. And I remember the two seniors that were, there were three seniors on the team and two of them were starters. You know, all three of them came in to see me the next morning here at my, in my office. And you know, I could just see that they were really heartbroken over the loss because it would have been a, a monumental win for our, our team and our program against a very good Providence St. Mel team. But uh, anyway, uh, that's one of those that kind of stays with you over the years. All right. So I want to kind of talk about your collegiate coaching experience and then the high school. Um, when you were coaching college, right? You went from high school to college. Uh-huh. What are some of the things you missed about the high school level? And then now that you're back at high school, you know, what are some of those things that you miss about the collegiate game? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Todd. I mean, and it's something I thought I've thought about. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I came back to high school. Um, I, I loved the, the 19 years I spent in college coaching were 19 great years. I, I've met some incredible people, had uh, some great experiences that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, but one of the things that I missed was that, you know, when you're dealing with an older student athlete, you really don't have the, the uh, caliber of impact necessarily that you have at the high school level. And, you know, the reason I got into coaching in the first place, I never got into coaching to become a college coach or to become a head division one coach or anything like that. I got into coaching because I loved sports and I, I, uh, sports were very uh, formative in my experience growing up. And uh, I felt that this is a great way that I could continue to maybe uh, play at least a small role in the, in the formation of, of, other, of other young men. And, and that's why I got into coaching in the first place and high school is where I landed. And, and I really enjoyed those years. And in the high school, at the college level rather, I, I missed that opportunity. You know, where you have a, a guy in his adolescent years and, you know, he's still living at home with his parents, but he's trying to, you know, learn a little bit about how to become independent and, you know, getting ready to go off to college. And, you know, uh, you're really helping form uh, him into, uh, into a, a, a great young man. And that's what I find in the high school level that I enjoy immensely and that I'm able to hopefully make some uh, impact and even however small to be an extension of what the parents are doing at home, right? So if the parents are trying to teach certain character uh, traits at home as, as, a, as a high school basketball coach and high school educator, I have the opportunity to maybe be an extension of that uh, through something they love to do. They love to play basketball. And I always like to say that, you know, we have an opportunity to give them what they need when they're doing what they want, which is you know, which is competing in sports. So I really miss that about, about the high school game. Uh, now that I've been back in high school for 17 years, 
you know, one of the things about the college game that I really enjoyed was the competitiveness. I mean, the, the, uh, the level of athlete, right? I mean, you're dealing with, 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 with a high level athlete in highly competitive situations. And there's a certain uh, aura and that, that uh, surrounds, you know, the practice and the games, especially, you know, when you have highly competitive, highly talented athletes, you know, competing, you know, or, you know, some of the places I had a chance to coach at Michigan State or Kentucky or whatever, you know, to see that level of intensity and competitiveness is something that is very unique to the college game and something that I enjoyed immensely, but I have absolutely no regrets. When I decided to come back to high school in 2003, 2004, it was the absolute right thing to do. And I haven't looked back once in 17 years. That is, that is a, I, I really like to, I really like when you said we can give them what they need while they do what we want or what right. they want. I thought that was awesome. So let's get into a little bit of X's and O's before we get into the one, three, one, which I know you've done many clinics and conversations on. I, I wanted to talk about your offense a little bit. My assistant uh, who's been in the game a long time, he, he was talking to me about your offense and I was watching a little film. It looked like it had some Princeton principles to it. Can you kind of just take us through some kind of the, as, as Todd would say to coaches, take away the fluff. What is at the core of your offense? Well, that, that's, that's great uh, thing to talk about. We, you know, um, I think there are certain uh, bedrock principles offensively. You know, uh, one of them is that I think you have to play together as a team. I, I think whatever offense you arrive at as a coach, I think it has to promote uh, team play and promote uh, togetherness and opportunities for everyone to be involved in, in one capacity or another. So that, that's one thing, one of the bedrock principles. I think another bedrock principle, uh, uh, John, I think is, is that the game is best played when it's played from the inside out. So, uh, you know, we talk a lot about getting the ball inside. Now that can be done a lot of different ways. It can be thrown inside to posting players. It can be driven inside right? You can get the ball inside on offensive rebounds. But I think a bedrock principle of ours is that the ball is that the game has to be played from the inside out that the best. Uh, and we love the three point shot, but we, we find that the best statistically, the best three point shots are when the ball goes inside out or it goes inside out. And then we make one more pass. We find that those are the best shots or the ball goes to the baseline and comes back out. And then we make one more pass uh, or we skip the ball and then make one more pass, you know? So th these bedrock principles for us, where we're moving the ball and, um, and, and, and you know, we, we like to say a lot to our team that the ball moves faster than men, right? Than the defensive men I'm talking about. So, you know, we, we, we prioritize the pass over the dribble over although the dribble is still an important part of our offense. So these are kind of bedrock principles that, uh, you know, I think it's important to get to the free throw line throughout the course of the game. And, and I think the best way to get to the free throw line is to throw the ball inside or drive it inside or offensive rebound it so that you can play the game from the inside out and get into the bonus. You know, we talk a lot to our team about getting into the bonus early and then defensively, conversely, not putting the other team in the bonus, right? So these are kind of the bedrock principles that that that, um, that govern our offensive thinking. And then how do we arrive at these things? Well, that can vary. 
And I, I don't think there's any one magic bullet uh, offense that's going to work, you know, with every team necessarily. But I think these bedrock principles have been with us as, as long as I've been coaching, really. And we've done it with motion offense. We've done it with uh, a variation of the flex that we still run today that we call spots or thumb up. We've done it with high-low offense. We've run it with Princeton. We've run it with Princeton principles uh, using some of the Princeton offense. So we, we've arrived at these bedrock principles a lot of different ways. But um, to me, those are unchanging. And so the, the actual uh, philosophy versus the style, right? The philosophy are these bedrock principles that never change in my view. The style of offense that we run may change uh, from team to team based on our personnel. Now, we don't like to make a lot of drastic changes from one year to the next. So we want some continuity and some flow so that our older players are able to use their experience to help the younger players. But, um, but we have made tweaks in our offense. And uh, our offense will look a little bit different this year than it did last year, for example, uh, because our personnel is slightly different. So um, I appreciate it. that's a good question about offense. And, and again, I like to make this distinction between uh, philosophy or bedrock principles and then style, the actual X's and O's that to me, if the X's and O's don't align with your bedrock principles exactly, if they don't, if they don't, you know, align, then, then there's something wrong. Um, you know, if we're going to run an offense, that's going to force us to play from the outside in, or it's not going to get us to the free throw line, or it's not going to give us a chance to offensive rebound or take advantage of uh, uh, numbers situations on the court, then that, to me, that offense is not going to be consistent with what we think is important. All right. So I want to get to the one, three, one now. Okay. Uh, get a little, get a little to the meat and potatoes here. First of all, like, why did you choose it? Um, you know, is there a certain advantage that thinks it gives you? That's kind of a multi-part question. Positionally, is there certain qualities you look for in those positions, right? Because, you know, there's, there's different things going on. And then um, what are your, some, your favorite counters or like different looks to it, right? Because, you know, they know, Okay, we're going to see one three one, and they're going to make adjustments. Other teams, so Absolutely. how can we, you know, make some counterbalances to that? Yeah, yeah, good, Todd. You know, uh, it's interesting because you know, uh, you know, we've been very, very blessed here at Northridge, and you know, our players and they deserve all the credit for our success because they we got great kids, but we've had you know coaches come by and, and usually they want to talk about our, our one three one or talk about our defense. And again, in the interest of full disclosure. I mean, the, the one three one is probably what we're known for. It's kind of our trademark or our staple, but we're really a, a multiple zone defensive team. We do some other things besides the one three one. We play a little bit of a two three matchup. We do some combination defenses, but to be sure, the one three one is what people associate with us defensively. And um, you know, as a, actually the one three one came about for me uh, as a college coach. I had the opportunity to watch a lot of video, you know, as I'm scouting and game preparation for opponents and what have you. And early on in my college coaching career, I uh, really became um, uh, fascinated, I guess, and, and enamored with, with uh, the Temple basketball program and John Chaney, who, by the way, just passed away 
here in the last few days. And I, I felt I felt John Cheney and his assistant Jim Maloney uh, were just outstanding zone defensive coaches. And so uh, somewhere around I don't know 1986 or 87, somewhere in there. Uh, as a college coach, I just started getting as much Temple uh, game videos as I could and, and just started watching them. And I, I studied John Cheney's zone defenses um, almost to the point of, uh, of ad nauseum. I mean, I was just, you know, watching and watching and watching it, it taking notes. And I have several notebooks of, of notes that I've taken from watching. And I, I just um, really felt that, that Coach Cheney and Coach Maloney, who also passed away, unfortunately, while Coach Cheney was still coaching, and I had the chance to meet with Jim. I only met Coach Cheney one time briefly in Detroit. We were both recruiting in the same venue. It was a very brief conversation. He was very generous, very kind, but uh, didn't have the chance to really sit down and, and visit with him like I would have liked to. But I did meet with uh, Jim Maloney, again, at a, at a recruiting um, event, and we had an opportunity to sit down and talk about about defense and about the zone and so forth. But I just felt that those Temple teams really um, were difficult to play against. I felt that they uh, they, they, they really controlled the, the Temple with their defense. And so I said to myself, if I ever become a head coach again, uh, I'm going to, to become a, 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 a disciple of this, of this defense. And John Chaney played a lot of 1-3-1, which he called Rover was his rover defense. And um, he also played some 3-2 and played some 2-3. And then when I came back to high school, I uh, had the opportunity to visit with two longtime, very successful Illinois high school coaches, both of whom were great 1-3-1 coaches throughout their careers. The first was Bob Basirich, who was the head coach at Lockport High School and, uh, and won a state championship in the 1970s, actually an undefeated state championship team. And, and, and uh, Bob played exclusively the 1-3-1 zone. And Bob and I, um, you know, Bob's still alive. And uh, I haven't talked to him much recently, but in recent years, we, we've talked occasionally. And, and I spent a lot of time with Bob when I first came back to high school. And, and then also with Ron Nikovich. Ron also won a state championship at Lions Township High School. Uh, back in the 70s or 80s, uh, 70s actually. And he played the 131, more of an extended zone and spent time with Ron. So uh, our 131 really is a combination of what I learned from watching the Temple teams, from what I learned from Bob Pesarich and Ron Nikovich, uh, who were local, very successful local high school coaches. And then, of course, we've also done some things with the 2-3 matchup and the combinations. And um, you know, I, yeah, there there are some qualities that go into uh, into the, into making the one three one successful. You know, we the the point man of the one three one is what we call the chaser, and we say he's kind of the tone setter of the defense. Uh, that's the first position that we usually pick. Then we pick the middleman, who we say is the hub of the defense. He kind of anchors the the middle, and then the tail, which is the the, the back line guy that uh, usually covers corner to corner. We, co we call him the tail. And we say he's the director of the defense because he has the defense in front of him. And so he has to communicate to the players in front of him what's happening. And then our, our two wings are more like disruptors. So their job is to kind of disrupt the flow of the basketball and, and make it difficult for people to get good, clean shots against the defense. So, you know, we kind of, um, you know, have given these special responsibilities to each 
each player and and then we try and, and, and select the positions accordingly to which players fit those positions best. And I often tell coaches that I think the most important decision that a coach makes is not uh, what what zone defense you play, but where you place your players in that zone. And we've had situations, Todd, over the years where we've had our team, you know, after 12 games be like eight and four. And, you know, we come out of the Christmas tournament and, you know, we just don't feel that our defense is right, even though we, you know, we're eight and four and we're winning a few games. And this has happened a few times in recent years where, you know, we studied the defense during Christmas break and, um, you know, we made a couple changes. Maybe we moved one player, you know, and took the chaser and put him in a wing and put the wing at a chaser. And then we won 13 straight games, right? And, or 12 straight games. That's happened a couple of times to us, like I said, in recent years. And people say, well, what did you change about the defense? Is there a, def a different coverage or whatever? And no, it was something as simple as putting the square pegs in the square holes and putting the round pegs in the round holes, right? And as coaches, that's really a big part of our job is making sure that we're putting the right pieces in place, both offensively and defensively. So I always say, tell coaches, if you want to play zone, if that zone is not, you know, kind of delivering the kind of results that you think, rather than scrapping it, maybe look at it some simple things such as just changing personnel or maybe making some adjustments in your coverages and you'll find that you'll get um, your better results. Well, now, now you got me. Now you got me all thinking about zones. I'm a huge zone guy. So off off the air, we're about to talk a whole lot, Coach. I switch up zones the whole time. As soon as you started talking, I did a fist pump, and Todd laughed at me. But uh, so just uh, we got a couple more questions. So you know, over your career, what are some things that you've learned and found that help with balance of work, family, and personal life? I think that's you know obviously it's something that a lot of coaches struggle with, and you know you've done it for so many years. What would be some advice you would give to some younger coaches? Yeah, boy, that that's a really a good question in the sense that, you know, the, the the coaching profession in my 45 years or whatever has changed so dramatically, um, largely because of the scrutiny. I believe you know coaches always been scrutinized, right? I mean, we're always under under the microscope, so to speak. But I was in college coaching when when uh, talk radio came into sports talk radio came into existence, and chat rooms and uh, websites and what have you, right? And also, I was in college coaching when the the advent of, you know, AAU basketball and club sports and so forth. So you know, all these things I believe, you know, John have, have placed the high school coach or the scholastic coach, whether it's a college coach or high school coach, grade school coach, whatever it might be, the, the coach in, this, in an educational setting has really placed them under a great deal of pressure and scrutiny. So arriving at that balance is really an important part of, of a coach's success. And, you know, for me personally, the thing that really, um, I guess, uh, you know, grounds me, I guess, or, or what I strive to, 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 to ground me is, is really, um, you know, my, my, my faith, first of all, um, you know, in, in keeping a proper perspective on, on the role of athletics in a young man's life, right? And seeing it as, as a part of the educational process and, and not the in and all of education, right? It's a part of the curriculum at a high school. 
and, and not, you know, not the, not the focal point, realizing that it's very important for some young men, right? Some young men will look back at their high school athletic experience and say, you know, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't know how I would have made it through high school or whatever. Um, so keeping that balanced approach really helps. And then I find that, um, you know, finding time in solitude. I, I try to spend time every day on my own. I like to journal a lot and just finding time to reflect and, and think and, and even, you know, pray. I mean, just to think about our team and think about, you know, what's this young man need right now in his development as a person? What does he need in his development as a player? What does our team need right now? You know, how am I, you know, what do I need right now? How, what, what can make me more effective? How can I better interact with our coaches? And I, and I think, you know, in today's uh, day and age, because of technology, you know, we're moving at a, at, a, at a pace and a speed that we really haven't moved at before, at least not in my experience. And, and I think we just need to be able to put on the brakes every day and, and carve out that time where we can be alone with our thoughts and a time for reflection, a time for solitude, to think about planning, about, um, you know, what does our team need? Rather than just moving from one thing to the next, you know, we move so quickly sometime. You know, we've all heard the old adage about, you know, taking the time to smell, you know, stop by the side of the road, smell the roses or whatever, whatever that old, uh, you know, adage is. I think we need to do that as coaches. And, and then I, I would add this, I, besides having that time of, of, of reflection and that time to think and, 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 um, and, and, and think about things, I think also having mentors and having uh, you know, partners in, in this, uh, like a thought partner or somebody that I, that I can exchange ideas with professionally, right? And personally. You know, having, you know, some people like to use the term accountability partner or whatever, you know, someone that I can talk to that maybe is a little bit removed from my situation on a day-to-day -day basis, but yet I can go with him or, you know, that person say, look, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with this or I'm, I'm thinking about that or, you know, how would you handle this situation? And again, having that opportunity to, you know, think things through with somebody and talk them through. I have found for me have really elucidated situations where I have found to be kind of challenging or difficult. So that would be my answer to how I try to keep things in the best perspective possible is finding that time to reflect and think and that quiet time. And then also having, uh, you know, these, these accountability partners or mentors, people outside of my immediate uh, circle that I can talk to and bounce ideas off of. And I, I've been sometimes really, um, you know, really edified by some of the things that people have told me. You know, I say, hey, look, what do you think about this? And somebody will say, well, geez, you know, did you ever think about this or that? And I think, wow, what a great insight that I never would have necessarily arrived at myself. So having uh, people you can talk to, I think is an important thing for all coaches. So uh, you've talked about this quite a bit, but you know, your players are done, they're gone, but they come back, they reach out to you, they visit. What gives you the most joy when you talk to them about your post-playing career and like what they're doing? 
And has yeah. there ever been a guy who kind of surprised you who <laughs> you thought maybe we didn't see eye to eye, but he came back and said, hey, you know, coach, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you um, for everything you did for me. Yeah, no, that that's, you know, I, I like to say, uh, Todd, those are the paychecks. Those are the paychecks in coaching, you know, uh, because, you know, as coaches, we never, unless we're coaching at a very unique level, we, we don't ever get paid in, you know, in terms of what we deserve, in terms of the hours and and so forth. But, um, yeah, no, that, in fact, uh, at our practice today, we had uh, two of our former players from last year were here. And, you know, it's, it's you know, we talk a lot about our program being a family. I think everybody, most coaches do that. And, you know, we talk about that there's three types of players in our program. There are the current players that are playing for us right now. There are the former players, the guys that have already played for us and graduated and moved on in life. And then there are the future players, right? Those guys that are, in our case here at Northridge, were grades six through 12. So those sixth, seventh, and eighth graders or freshmen that are going to be our players in the future. But it's really uh, a, a joy for me when our former players come back and you know, they, it's amazing. We, we host our own Thanksgiving tournament and have since I've been at Northridge. And it's amazing how many of our former players come back for our opening night game. Usually it's during Thanksgiving break. So a lot of them are home from college and we'll have, you know, 40, 50 guys here in the gym watching our opening night. And, and uh, it, you know, it just really warms my heart to see that, uh, that somehow their experience at Northridge or with our team uh, you know, somehow made an impression that they want to come back and, and share that uh, that experience, even with their with their wives or with now with their children. It's amazing. Some of the guys I've already coached here at Northridge have their own kids, you know. And so it's great to see when I walk out for a game and look behind the bench and see one of our former players with his wife and a little toddler, you know. And, and so it's always wonderful to see. And, of course, there's been situations where guys that I didn't see eye to eye and you know, it's, it's, you, you realize now that you're more experienced as a coach that, you know, there's such a, uh, a maturity uh, that, that players have to go through, right? They're adolescents and, you know, they may not see things the same way, but then when they're now bosses or they're running their own businesses or their spouses, you know, they see some of these things in a different light. And sometimes they'll come back and say, you do you remember when you said this? And a lot of times I don't remember having said anything like that, yeah. but they'll say, now I see the value of that, you know? And, and so then again, these are the paychecks and coaching and, and the rewards uh, for what we do. And, you know, if we see the bigger picture, which obviously with, with age and experience, you see the bigger picture much clearer than we all did when we first started out coaching. So, so no, thank you for that question, because that's actually, you know, what keeps me in coaching, you know, I tell our players all the time, guys, I say, guys, the reason that you're in this venture is not to win more games and not to get more trophies or become all state or all conference and not that. And by the way, our players have achieved those things and they're fine. And, and that's good. You know, we have banners on the wall and trophies in our trophy case, but that's not the reason that they're involved in this venture. If you're not a better person, for having gone through the experience, then I don't care if we go undefeated, win the state championship, it will not have, you know, gotten the most out of this season. And then I tell him, I said, look, that's the reason why I coach, you know, I'm not coaching for building a resume or trying to, you know, get more wins or whatever, but I coach because I want to be a better person. And so you're trying to grow as a player. 
I'm trying to grow as a coach. I'm trying to grow. You're trying to grow into a young man. I'm trying to grow into a man myself. So the whole experience of athletics should be growth opportunity for everyone involved from players to coaches as well. So obviously with the after timeout podcast. All right. So we're going to give a little after timeout question here. So you're playing your one, three, one, your, your zone, your matchup, whatever it may be. Um, you know, what are some common adjustments you see? You know, somebody's going to take a timeout. Oh, these yep. guys are, these guys are getting us with this. Um, and then maybe what is something that somebody did that surprised you or, or like an individual player or quality, a skill that gives you trouble? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's one of the things about, you know, as I said earlier, some coaches will combine. They'll want to talk about our, our zone. And I think what we've done uh, really well, Todd, is we've stayed with, the, you know, like that, that's one of the things I learned in watching Temple is that coach Cheney stayed with his zone defenses, you know, I mean, sure, he won a lot of games. You know, he went to five elite eights, I believe it was. Uh, he went to five elite eights and won a lot of conference championships. But he also took some losses, like every coach does. But, you know, you watch and he just adjusted. And uh, and that's what we've managed to do here. You know, is, is whenever someone has done something to bother us, whether it's a certain action or play, you know, screen, certain offensive set, you know, rather than scrap the defense and say, we're going to find something different. You know, we've studied and we've looked to find ways to counter. So what we've done is we sometimes changed the coverages in our zone. And I learned that from watching the Temple teams. And, you know, I'd watch a Temple game and I'd see a certain coverage in their 1-3-1 or their Rover. Then I watch them two games later and I see a different coverage. And I, I came to realize that, you know, they were making adjustments based on the personnel or what had worked or hadn't worked against this opponent previously. And so we've tried to do the same thing. So, for example, in the one three one, sometimes we'll deny certain passes. Sometimes we won't. Sometimes we'll trap. Sometimes we won't. Sometimes we'll trap and rotate a certain way. Sometimes we'll trap and rotate a different way. Uh, sometimes we'll show the one three one. And we'll, after a certain number of passes, we'll be in the two, three. Sometimes we'll, um, you know, show the two, three. And after a certain number of passes, we'll be in the one, three, one. So we, we, we like to have um, a multiple approach defensively. I think in order to just set up one defense and say, you know, this is all we're going to do. We're going to be one, three, one this way, come whatever may I think it's a little bit short-sighted, at least in my view. I know some coaches have done that successfully, but uh, I think that, um, you know, it, it's whoever has the chalk last wins, right? I mean, or whoever has the, the uh, fast draw, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Amen. Yeah, the, the fast draw pen wins, you know. I say chalk and people look and say chalk, what's chalk, you know? But um you know, basketball, I, I see the strategy of the game as being a really uh, integral part of the game. I mean, I, I like to tell our our players and our coaches that I like to let the game speak to me, you know, and what do I see? You know, I, I think coaching is as much an art form as it is a science. And if I, you know, if, if all of a sudden we're doing something defensively and this team has prepared a certain way, you know, and it's bothering us, by God, we need to counter that. 
I mean, we need to have a, a, a counter to that and then see what they do. You know, do they then counter again? If they do, then we need to do something else, you know? And to me, that's the strategy aspect of coaching that makes the game really interesting for me. And uh, so, you know, when people say, oh, you know, you just play, you know, one, three, one. Well, you know, if you really watch closely and study, you'll see that we have yeah. some real nuanced changes in what we do. And again, I give all the credit to, to the, the genius, I believe, of a great coach in John Chaney and his assistant, Jim Maloney in particular, because they, um, they opened up my eyes uh, to seeing a side of, of defensive basketball that I had not seen before. And, you know, I, I tell you what, I'm on that. Uh, also, uh, you know, I, I also studied very closely Roly Massimino at Villanova mm -hmm. and his assistant, Mitch Bonagoro, was a, is still is a very close friend of mine. And, you know, uh, uh, Roly Massimino, people say, won the uh, most unbelievable national championship in 1985 when they beat Georgetown. And he was a multiple zone defensive coach. And he was one that I watched closely and spent a lot of time with Mitch Bonagoro. So, again, these coaches opened up my eyes to uh, a defensive perspective that I had never considered coming up as a coach. I came up in the uh, Bob Knight, uh, you know, school of man to man. And that was a great foundation to be sure. But uh, that was a foundation upon which we were able to build uh, a, a different approach. So it's been good to us. And I think we'll continue to do it as long as I coach. All right, so I kind of tweaked our top five. So every episode we finish with just a fun top five, but just in listening to you speak the whole time, I'm like, he's going to have an even more fun time with what I tweaked it to. So can you give us, in your opinion, your top five zone defense coaches, any level, high school, college, pro, it doesn't matter, your top five zone defense coaches? Yeah, I, I can't. I've, I've mentioned four of those already. Yep. <laughs> So John John Cheney and uh, and and Roly Massimino and in, in both cases they had great assistant coaches right John Cheney with Jim Maloney and and Roly Massimino with my good friend Mitch Montagoro. Uh so those will be two John Cheney and and and, and Roly uh, then I mentioned two local high school coaches that I thought were great zone defensive coaches in uh, in in Bob Baserich and in Ron Nikovich and then uh, I guess uh, if I were to pick pick a fifth. I would again um, pick another local high school coach uh, who's been retired for a long time, uh, but was the head coach of St. Pat's High School for many years by the name of Max Curland. Curland, I would. Yeah, say. Max. Max. In fact, uh, I, I saw his one-three-one. Um, you know, growing up as a coach, coached against him both at Fenwick and at Gordon Tech, and you know, I, in those years we were playing all man-to-man, -man, but or mostly man-to-man -man at Fenwick, but. Um, but I had a lot of respect for Max Curlin and then one of his assistant coaches uh, who was a former player of his that went to Bennett Academy by the name of Bill Geist. Uh, Bill had a lot of success playing the, uh, the, the uh, zone that Max uh, popularized, which was uh, kind of a one through one matchup or point zone. So I would say those are the top zone coaches that I um, have seen in my experience. And uh, you know, all of them were coaches from whom I learned a lot and, and I, I have a debt of gratitude that I could never repay because they've helped me in more ways than I can, than I can say thank you. Well, coach, this was awesome. I, I was, I messaged Todd on the side and I said, this is one of my favorite episodes. So thank you so much for joining us. I know this is a crazy time of year for you, just like it is for us. So 
thank you for taking time out for prepping your high school team to start the season to, to spend an hour with us just talking basketball and helping grow the game. We appreciate it. Well, you're more than welcome, John and, and Todd. And I, I can't tell you how uh, grateful I am for the time you guys are taking to do this. And uh, I think anything we can do to keep promoting uh, the game of basketball and, and, and making the game better, I think is, is really a positive, positive thing. So thank you to both of you for your time and energy in this, in this, uh, in this venture. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the After the Timeout podcast. For more information and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. You can find all of our episodes on anchor.fm, Spotify, Overcast, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts by searching After the Timeout. Thank you for listening.